You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Thank you for uh, your word. We thank you. You've revealed yourself to us through your word and you teach us by your Holy Spirit. So we pray for that this morning, that our hearts would be receptive. Our minds would be uh, ready to receive what you have for us through your servant from your word. Thank you that your Holy Spirit has been at work in our brother Jackson in preparing uh, this uh, message for this morning. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to be at work in working in and through him as he communicates what you have for us from your word to build up, to encourage, to exhort, to equip your people. So we pray that we would be transformed by the power of your Holy Spirit through your word as you use your servant to encourage and equip your people here. So be with us, be with uh, Jackson. And uh, speak to us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, brother. Thanks, Pastor Jake. <clears throat> okay, I just want to make sure. Um, had some trouble with the microphone in the last service. Uh, but that sounds a little bit better. Well, good morning, everybody. It's, it's wonderful to see you all. Uh, it is a joy for me to be up here and, and to be able to preach God's word to you. Um, I, I'm thankful to see so many of you guys here, especially on a morning like this morning. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I had my pickup on auto start for, I think, about 10 minutes. And when I got in there, I still had to scrape my windshield both on the outside and on the inside of it. Uh, so I, I know it was probably a bit difficult to get here, but thank you guys for, for coming. So like, like Pastor Jake said, I am not a pastor here at River City. Uh, but I am um, a part of River City Institutes uh, that goes on here, which is a program. And in that, I am... I'm, I'm doing that with the hope of, of uh, entering into pastoral ministry. And part of that training is that I get um, occasionally the opportunity to, to come up here and, and, and preach. I preached one time this summer uh, when we were going through the Psalms, and this is kind of my second time doing it. So it is, it is a pleasure to be with you, um, and, and I'm thankful for the opp- opportunity to do this. So <clears throat> with, with that introduction aside, you can open up your Bibles And we're going to be in John chapter 1 this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, please feel free to raise your hand. And uh, these guys on our strike team will hand you one. And those are yours to to keep, if you would like. And if you've been here the last couple weeks, uh, we've been going through our our series in Advent. And and we've been in in John chapter 1. And we've been looking at, uh, you know, what I would call kind of the Christmas story, according to the Apostle John. And interestingly, in John's account of the Christmas narrative, it's much shorter than the other Gospels. And he makes no mention of wise men, or Mary, or Joseph, or angels, or a manger, or anything else like that. Instead, John kind of pulls back the curtain for us, and he offers us a bit of a different perspective. Instead of giving us the earthly perspective of the Christmas narrative, John gives us a heavenly perspective. He tells us not just about the birth of of Jesus as a man, but about his eternal existence as the second person of the divine trinity and as the eternal word of God. 
He tells us about Jesus who was in the beginning with God and who himself is God. And Jesus through whom all things were made. And most remarkably, in verse 14, he says that the eternal word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And that that is how John, in a very succinct way, tells us uh, about about the reason that we have Christmas. That the the eternal word of God became flesh and he dwelt among us. And that's the verse that we've been in for this series. uh, And that's the verse we're going to be in today. So if you want to open up, we're going to be in, in John one, and we're going to look at verse 14, and I'm just going to read that for us quick. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That is God's Word for us this morning. Now, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, we've been kind of slowly looking, uh, working our way through this verse, kind of hitting on each clause in the verse. A few weeks ago, Pastor Jake talked specifically about what it means that the Word became flesh. What it means that uh, in Jesus is both a, a human and a divine nature. That Jesus is both fully and truly God. And at the same time, He is both fully and truly man. And last week, Pastor Marty preached to us about, preached to us about what it means that Jesus dwelt among us. He talked about the Emmanuel Principle. And how in the person of Jesus, we find the fulfillment of that, that God is with us. And that brings us to our section today, which is that we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. So that's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And now, when we think about the glory of God, or, or the biblical command that we are to glorify God in all that we do, I think that can sometimes be a bit of a challenge for us. And I think there's a couple reasons for that. First of all, even though the Scriptures have much to say about the glory of God, we live in, uh, in, in, a, in a culture specifically that is very unconcerned about God's glory and instead is is rather loudly proclaiming the glory of man in the place of God. We live in a culture where the prevailing notion is that people are basically good, which is in opposition to Jesus who said that God alone is good. And secondly, the Bible makes clear that, that every one of us is born with a sinful nature and our natural inclination is not to glorify God and not to honor God but rather to exchange that glory for something else and something that is ultimately less than God. That's the point that the Apostle Paul makes in Romans chapter 1. He says in verse 21 in his his description of humanity that although they know God, they do not honor Him as, as God or give thanks to Him, but they become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts become darkened and while claiming to be wise, they become fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So that's the challenge for us. That is, that is what the Bible says about our, our human condition by nature. Even though we know God, it is not natural for us to honor God or to, to glorify God properly. And instead, we exchange God's glory 
for lesser glories. And inevitably, inevitably, the result of that is not that we then go on to worship nothing or to glorify nothing in our lives, but rather uh, that, that we will worship and glorify anything. Whatever it is that we think will satisfy our heart's desires, whatever it is that, that we think we could find that will give us what we ultimately long for and what we were ultimately created for, which alone we can find in God and in knowing God. Apart, apart from the illuminating work of, of, of God's Spirit in us and the revelation of the Gospel to us, that is the condition to which we are doomed. An endless search after lesser glories and none that can satisfy. And I don't think that the, the glory of God is a problem that is, is just for, for the unbeliever, but even so often for us as believers, we can be tempted or pulled in the direction of, of, of seeking, seeking glory in, in something else other than God, something that is less than God. And I think so often that the Christian life is, is, is one that is a fight to see the glory of God and then to glorify Him properly. It is a fight to see the glory of God in such a way that all of the lesser glories that would pull us from God would, would melt away from us. That, that, is, that is our hope as Christians, that we would see the glory of God in that way, that we, we would see Jesus as that glorious. And with that said, my, my, my contention for this sermon, and what I think is some hope for us, is that John makes this claim that he has seen the glory of God in the person of Jesus. That the glory of God has been revealed in the person of Jesus. And I'm going to contend that we too can see that glory. And that we should see that as the highest glory. And that it's in seeing that glory of Jesus that we are then able to glorify Him in response. So that's kind of going to be the framework that we're looking at. And, and now the way I want to do that, just to give you a heads up a bit of where we're going in this sermon, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to try to, to give a, a proper explanation of what I think John is ultimately communicating in this verse. And I think there's a lot there, and I hope, hopefully we'll all see that in a minute here. And then after that, I want to get to some more uh, specific application um, what it looks like for us to see the glory of God and then for us to glorify God properly. So first of all, what is it that John means by saying that he, as well as others, he says, we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. <clears throat> now before we kind of get into what John is saying, I think there's a few things to note that are, are helpful for us to understand. First of all, we need to understand why John has written this book. We need to understand his purpose for writing it. And luckily, we don't have to wonder about that because John himself tells us. If you look at the end of John chapter 20, he gives this interesting kind of like a, a purpose statement for why he has written this gospel. And he says this. Uh, this is John 20, verse 30. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs 
in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing in Him that you would have life in His name. That is the reason that John has written this this Gospel. And that is the reason that everything that we see in the Gospel of John, it it has been intentionally put there so that we would see and understand and believe who Jesus is and what He has done for us. And that by faith in Him that we would have eternal life. That is John's argument. That's what he wants us to convince of it. Convince us of it. And everything in, his, in this book and in our passage is for that purpose. Now another thing to note. John, if you're unaware, John lived in the first century. And he wrote to a, primarily a first century audience made up of, of both Jews and, and some Gentiles. And he is portraying Jesus as the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises of God. He's saying that Jesus is not revealing to us necessarily something new, but He is fulfilling something that God has previously revealed and things that ultimately pointed to Him. And he is assuming when he writes that his audience is familiar with the Old Testament and at least has some working knowledge of it, right? And now I, I, I want to include that in here for a couple of reasons. First of all, I think in our passage, and we're going to see, I think John is making a point from the Old Testament about Jesus. I think that's, that's kind of at the heart of what's going on, is that, that he is telling us something about, about Jesus that fulfills an Old Testament expectation and, and kind of an Old Testament image. And also, I wanted to take this opportunity just to really shamelessly say to you that um, the next River City Equip class that is coming up in January, going through the, the Old Testament, it's called a survey of the Old Testament, I took that class in, in RCI this last semester, and it is well worth your time. I would encourage you, if you have the opportunity to do that, please do. You know, we read in the Gospels, Jesus says some remarkable things about the Old Testament. Uh, he says about the Pharisees, or to the Pharisees, he says that, you know, you know they, 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 they claim to hold to the law, to the law of Moses. And he says, you, you claim to believe in Moses, but Moses wrote of me. And if you believed Moses, that you would believe in me? And that's a remarkable statement. And sometimes it's hard for us to see that reality in the Old Testament. But it is there. And that, that class specifically was, was very helpful in, in, in understanding that. So I just want to encourage you, if you have an opportunity to do that, to take that class. And now, when we look at John's argument here, what he's saying, I think it's pretty clear that what John is doing... In verse 14, as he is making a point about Jesus that would immediately draw out an image from the Old Testament for all of his readers, especially any of his readers that are familiar with the Old Testament or with Jewish history. And I think he's pointing back uh, to an event after the Exodus, which we read about just a bit ago as a church. And for first century Jews at this time, the, the Exodus is like a landmark historical event. That is the that is that's like the holiday that they would celebrate. In their annual feasts, they would celebrate the Exodus. If you think about the way that we celebrate Christmas and the birth of Jesus, 
Think about that, but actually kind of bigger and better. When we celebrate Christmas, we often take a couple days off, but they would take off an entire week to celebrate the goodness of God in, in, in their redemption from the nation of, of Egypt. That's how important the Exodus was. And when I say John is pointing back to that event, I think there's two words that John uses in verse 14 that really make that clear. Uh, the first of all is, is the word dwelt. It says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And now in, in the Greek, if we were to translate that word literally, it, it is a verb that means he, he came and he tabernacled among us. He, he tabernacled among us. And anyone reading that would immediately call the in the Old Testament that the, the tabernacle that God instructed the people to make after the Exodus where He was present with them as a place for Him to dwell. So that's the first thing. And the other word from our verse today is the word glory and it's connected to uh, the tabernacle as well. So after God instructed them to, to build the tabernacle and they built the tabernacle. And the, and the tabernacle, by the way, it would look, I think I have a slide in there, but it should look something, something like this. If you remember from the Scripture reading this morning, after they finished building the ta- tabernacle, it said that it was filled with the glory of God. And in this case, by the glory of God, what it referred to was a visible manifestation of God's presence. And it was in the form of a a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And it was described as as being God's God's glory manifested to them. And in this way, all the Israelites could see the glory of God for themselves and they could know that God was present with them and that God would lead them wherever they went. And what's important for us to understand about this is that in our passage, I think John is clearly making a point both to the contemporary Jews of his day and to us that when we read the Old Testament and we read about the tabernacle where God was present with His people and we read about the glory of God that accompanied His presence, that we need to realize that these things were not an end in themselves. They were not an end in themselves, but they, 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 they were to teach the people about the way God works and they were to point to something greater They were temporary realities that point to an ultimate reality. And that ultimate reality is the person of Jesus. The tabernacle was meant to be a temporary way for God to be present with His people and to point to God's ultimate presence with His people in the person of Jesus. And the glory of God that was manifested there was meant to be a temporary revelation of His glory that points to the ultimate revelation of God's glory, again, in the person of Jesus. And here we see that God God does not dwell with His people in a tent, and He he does not reveal His glory to us in cloud and fire, but primarily God dwells with us in the person of Jesus, and we see the glory of God primarily in the person of Jesus. And I think that's the point that John is making for his Jews and and for for the Jews of his day and for us today. The tabernacle and the glory of God, they pointed to something better. They pointed to Jesus. 
And now not only do I think John is making that theological point about Jesus, but he is also claiming that he has witnessed this glory of Jesus. Not just that Jesus is that glory of God, but that he has seen that glory of God in the person of Jesus. So the question we ask then becomes, what does John mean when he says that he has seen the glory of God in the person of Jesus? And I think the challenge comes when we, we realize that what John cannot mean is that in his earthly life, Jesus walked around with some sort of visible glow that represented the glory of God that was in him. Right? Isaiah 53 says he has no form or majesty that we should behold. And there was nothing about Jesus in his physical appearance that would lead us to believe anything other than that he was a man just like us. And that's the problem that the Pharisees had. By all appearances, Jesus is a normal-looking Jewish man, and that's all that they could see him for. So when they looked at him, and they saw a normal-looking man, and they heard him make claims about himself, when they heard him say that, that he and the Father are one, and when they pressed him about how he could know Abraham, and he said, before Abraham was, I am, they thought that he was a blasphemer. And it, sometimes it's a little bit hard to blame them. Jesus, in his appearance, looked like a man like us. But the question, then, is if we know that in his appearance he wasn't distinguishable, how is it that John saw the glory of God in the person of Jesus? A few thoughts. First of all, even if the glory of God was not visible in the person of Jesus, it doesn't mean that the glory of God was not there. You could think of, uh, of an illustration this way. It's similar to the way that we know that the sun is always shining, even if we cannot always see it. On an overcast day, when there is clouds that come and block the sun from our vision, we know that the sun still shines just as bright as if those clouds weren't there. But our view of the, the shining sun has been blocked. And in a similar way, the glory of God is hidden so to speak, in the human flesh of Jesus. So that to the average eye, it is not perceptible. But it is still there. And secondly, we know of multiple times in the Gospel accounts where the, the veil of Jesus' human nature is taken away and John, as well as other apostles, are able to witness for themselves the glory of of God in the person of Jesus. They are able to see that. And specifically, I think the thing that John has in mind is the transfiguration of Jesus that is recorded in the other Gospels. If you listen to the way that Matthew records the transfiguration, he says this about it. I want you to picture this scene in your mind. Matthew 17, 1-8. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother, John being the author of the Gospel of John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And he was still speaking when, behold... A bright cloud overshadowed them, 
excuse me, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when he came and or when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now that is a tremendous scene. I think that we can sometimes read that and we can kind of gloss over that quickly. But that is a tremendous scene. I think it's difficult for words to capture what it meant for them to see the glory of Jesus. But I think in their reaction, we can see what, this really was, what it really was like that they fell on their faces and that they were terrified. And when the veil of Jesus' human nature was taken away and they saw for themselves the glory of the eternal Son of God. Now I want you to to think for a moment about this glory of Jesus and think if there's anything possibly that could replicate this kind of glory. No matter how big they make the Super Bowl or no matter how big they make music festivals or the World Cup or whatever it is, there is nothing that can replicate the glory of God in the person of Jesus. The glory of Christ is so great a thing to behold that if we could see it now, just like Peter and John, we would fall down and worship and we would be utterly silenced just like Isaiah in the Old Testament and like Job in the Old Testament. So I think that's, that's primarily the event that the, the Apostle John is talking about. He has for himself witnessed this glory of Jesus. And when we think about application for this text, the, the, the issue is that it's very likely that we are not going to witness anything like the transfiguration in our lifetimes. And it's very likely that we are not going to see, like John did, the resurrected body of Christ. But I think there are still clearly ways that we are able to see the glory of God and that we are commanded to see them. And in response, that we are commanded to glorify Him. And I think actually that our ability to see the glory of Christ is directly correlated to our ability to then glorify Him in our lives. And I think that's true for really, really anything that we value, anything that we treasure, any of those things, whatever it is that that we love and cherish, we are going to glorify in our lives in some way. So there is a need for us, just like John, to see the glory of Christ and to see it as the greatest glory. So my my main proposition for this sermon is going to be this, and then I have just two points that follow this. The proposition is that the glory of Christ has been revealed to us as the greatest of all glories. And the two points are these. So we must see His glory And secondly, we must then glorify Him. So part one, we must see His glory. Now the question then is if we're we're not like John and we're not not privy to such an event that John was able to witness, how is it that we can see the glory of Christ? And to answer that, I want to turn to John chapter 16 
And I think we find uh, an answer for us there. In John chapter 16, Jesus is sort of having his last word with his disciples just before he, he is going to go to the cross. And he says something that I think would have shocked them. In verse 7, he says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And by Helper, Jesus means the, the Holy Spirit that he will send after him. But I wonder, for the apostles to hear this, who spent so much time with Jesus, I wonder how they would imagine that there would be any possible scenario in which, in which Jesus going away from them would actually be better for them. But Jesus insists that that is the case, and, and the reason for that is that after He does, He is going to send the Spirit in His place. And what does He spend, send the Spirit to do? If you go down to verse 13, it says, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. And notice this. And He will glorify Me. For He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. Now in that verse, I think we get kind of a glimpse at the mission statement of the Holy Spirit in the world. It's a bit, it's a bit simplistic. It doesn't give us a, a full doctrine of the Holy Spirit by any means. But I think that it's a rather good summary. The mission of the Spirit is to glorify the person and the work of Jesus. To reveal in the hearts of God's people how glorious Jesus actually is. And how does He do that? Well, if you look at the beginning of the verse, it says, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. So I think, I think the ministry of the Spirit primarily consists of the revelation of divine truth that leads to the glory of Jesus. The truth is the, the means and the glory of Jesus is the end. And where do we find that divine truth? Well, one chapter later, John 17, I think this is a, a brief answer to our question, but Jesus is praying to the Father and He makes this prayer to His people. He says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. But where do we find truth? How do we know what's true? Well, we find truth primarily in God's word. And it's in God's word that, that we find true knowledge of God and where we find true knowledge of ourselves. It's in God's word where we are able to see the glory of God and to see the glory of Christ in, in the gospel. And I think that's primarily the means that the Spirit uses to show us the glory of Christ. And that's why it's so important for us to study the Scriptures. If we are to see the glory of God, then we have to know how it is that God has revealed His glory. And now, sometimes I, I think it's remarkable that, that in an age where the Bible is so easy to access that it can be so, so difficult for us to do, I, I think that some of the advent of, of the technology that we have, though, though it's wonderful in many ways, it can be difficult for us to sit down and to think deeply and to take time, to take time to study the Bible. The Bible is a big book. It's much easier for me to scroll through Facebook or Twitter 
and find information. But it is so imperative if I am to see the glory of God that I take the time and that I sit down and that I study the Scriptures. And that is the primary means that the Spirit of God uses to glorify Christ in our hearts and to show us, to reveal to us that glory. And that's why it's so important that in community, in the church, that we discuss God's Word together and that we encourage each other with divine truths about God and, and about ourselves. So that's the first thing. I think the ministry of the Spirit enables us to see the glory of Christ primarily in God's Word. Now secondly, I want to make this point. I think that we see the glory of Christ most clearly when we believe the Gospel most deeply. And I think that's very important. There's an interesting phrase that the Apostle Paul uses to describe the Gospel. He does it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But he talks about he, he, he says, uh, well, he's talking about, first of all, that, that God, it says that he blinds, that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So I think that, that in the message of the gospel is most of all where we see the glory of Christ. It is not just by seeing who Jesus is that we see his glory, but also by seeing what he has done. It's one thing for us to see Him as the eternal Word of God and to recognize that all, all of His glory that is in that, but how much more when we see that the eternal Word became flesh. And how much more glorious is He when we see not just His humility and His condescension, but when we grasp the actual reason why He came in the first place. In His own words, He said that He came in order to seek and to save the lost and to give His life as a ransom for many. He came to us not just so that He could be a good example, or not, and not just so that He could give us good moral teaching, but He came to us because we were lost. And because we need to be saved. And the way that He came to do that was to give His own life in the place of ours. He came to, to suffer in our place, and to, He went to the cross to take on the wrath of God that was meant for us. And it's not until we understand that that we can really see the glory of Christ. It's not until I understand that, I, that when I look at the cross of Christ and I see Jesus there, that He is there, that the, what, what happened to Him is actually what, what I deserve for my sin and that He took it in my place. And that, that is where I see the... the that, there's, there's nothing more than that that could get me to fall on my knees and worship Jesus than to know the sin that I have committed and to know that He has borne that in my place and that He came for that purpose. And I think that it, it is the message of the Gospel which primarily fuels our ability to glorify God. First of all, the, the Gospel offers to satisfy our primary spiritual need, which is to have peace with God, to have a relationship with God. It, it ends the, the battle between us and God that our sin creates. And secondly, the Gospel gives us assurance that we are loved and accepted by God. And He has proven that by sending Christ to die for our sin. The Gospel gives us assurance that apart from what we do, that God, God is gracious and that God is loving towards us. Thirdly, the Gospel 
denounces our natural desires, which are to glorify ourselves. And instead, it says that we are saved by the grace of God alone. And that we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. That it is not by our merit and it's not by any work that we have done, but it is by the work that Christ has done for us. And that the outcome of all of that is the glory of God alone. Paul says that in the gospel there is no room for our boasting, there is no room for our glorifying in ourselves, that all the glory of the gospel belongs to God. So it is the gospel that most reveals the glory of Christ to us, and that is why it is the central message of the Bible. And that is why it is so important that we in the church uphold and cherish and proclaim the gospel where the glory of Christ is so clearly seen. Think of the Apostle Paul who wrote to the Corinthians that when he came to them, he was determined to know nothing among them except for Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's how central the gospel is. So that's the first point. I think that by the the ministry of the Holy Spirit and by us understanding and grasping the message of the gospel, we can see the glory of Christ. We can see the glory of Christ revealed to us and we can know that the the glory of Christ that has been revealed to us is the highest of all glories. And that brings us to the second point. The second point is the only proper response to that, which is that we must then glorify God in response. And now my argument in this sermon is essentially that there is a connection between our ability to see the glory of Jesus and our ability to glorify Him. So that if we have seen His glory that then that affects how we live our lives and that affects our ability to glorify Him. And and at the heart of that, I think it is a biblical definition of what it means to have received Christ and to have believed in Him. A biblical definition of what it means to have saving faith in Jesus. And it, it, it doesn't mean that we come to some sort of rational agreement with certain facts about Jesus. And it doesn't mean that our relationship with Him consists of, once in a while, asking Him to help us get the things that we want. But instead, the the Scriptures describe saving saving faith in Christ as a relationship with Him that involves submission to Him as the Lord of our lives and seeing Him as our greatest treasure. If I think about my own life, before I knew Jesus and, and then after, I, th- I think maybe the primary shift that happened in my life is beforehand, that my life was completely guided and completely governed by my own desires. I did what I wanted in order to get what I wanted. But when I came to see the glory of, of, of God in the person of Christ and the glory of Christ in the gospel, that, that fundamentally changes things. Instead of my life being governed by my own desires, my life is governed by the Word of God. That I want to be obedient to God in what He has revealed to us and to glorify Him in the way that that He has called us to. And with that, it, it is no longer my prayer or my hope that God's Word would match my desires, but instead, it is my prayer and my hope that my desires would match up with what, with God's Word that my heart would be transformed to see the glory of God and that that in that, 
that I would be able to submit to Him and to love Him with my whole heart. That I would be able to love the things that God loves and to hate the things that God hates. I think that's primarily what is at the heart of of what it means to glorify God in our lives. Primarily, I think it means to reflect the glory of God and the character of God. It it is to reflect the, the compassion, the grace, the mercy, and the love that we have received in the Gospel. It is to reflect the holiness and the righteousness of God. It's to talk about it's to talk about God, to talk about Jesus. Like we would talk about anything that we treasure. If there's anything that we treasure and we value and we love and we cherish, we talk about it and we glorify it. And and I think primarily also the way that we can glorify God is, is by trusting Him and trusting in the promises of the Gospel, even and perhaps most at the times when it is hardest to do so. Sometimes the way that we glorify God the most is even in in our greatest suffering when we can hold up the treasure and the glory of Christ and say that we are okay. That, That even if all else were to fail me, that I know that I have Christ and that that is enough for me. Sometimes God is most glorified in our, in our hardest situations when we can demonstrate to a, a watching world that Jesus is that worthy, that He is that glorious, that no matter what, what else could happen, no matter what else could, could come my way, that, that God is my greatest treasure and my greatest hope. So I'm going to conclude there for today. I hope that you've been encouraged. I I hope you've seen the glory of Christ for yourself today, the way that the glory of God has been been revealed. And I I hope that that from this you would desire more and more to seek the glory of God in, in all things and in all aspects of our lives. For Christ is the highest and the best Glory. And and in Him, all other lesser glories fade away. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the grace that You've shown to us. We thank You for the Gospel. God, we thank You that in the Gospel, most of all, we have the hope of seeing Your glory for ourselves. Most of all, that the glory of God that, that has been revealed in Jesus can sustain us through this life and and bring us into the next one where we can see that glory face to face and where we will dwell in your presence. So God, we thank you. I pray that you would encourage us throughout this week and help us to, to rest in you and to trust you. We love you, Father, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.